Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. My most recent book is called Cold Moon. And the cold moon of the year is the last moon of the year, and it anticipates the winter solstice. One night, I was visiting in New Jersey, and I looked and I looked over the ocean. And to my left was the moon, this beautiful moon rising over the sea, shedding its light on the sea and f- reflected in the waves. And the waves almost look like an audience applauding the moon. And we're little people doing little things, and suddenly there's this bigness in front of us. And... I thought, well, I'm coming to the end of my life. I'm in the eclipse years of my life. What is important to me? What is important to me that I have learned? And it came to three simple things, life, love, and responsibility. And so I wrote Cold Moon on life, love, and responsibility. That's my friend Roger Rosenblatt. As a friend, Roger is funny, thoughtful, generous, and a gentle teacher. So it's no surprise he's all of those things as a writer. That's true in his essays, in his plays and novels, and in his writing about writing. This is going to be real fun for me because, first of all, we're friends. And secondly, I always have fun when I talk to you. Me too. When I talk to me, I mean. (laughs) I I was rereading today your wonderful book, Unless It Moves the human heart, the craft and art of writing. And of course, there's nothing more communication-oriented than writing. You know, I, I was coming across some nuggets. You had something interesting to say about nouns and adjectives. Oh, I love them. <laughs> you don't seem to love them both equally. Uh, no, you seem I don't. to like nouns a lot better. I love nouns. If you have three adjectives to describe a noun, you've got the wrong noun. If you need to, uh, to have three, the, uh, the green fat um, uh, burly something, uh, you've got the wrong noun. Into a noun, you can pack almost an entire life, the, the, the meaning of the thing itself, the thing itself, and it makes a tighter writing and much more powerful writing. You find your noun, verbs too, but find, find that noun and you won't need it, you know, you would hardly need any adjectives. Does it weaken the noun to do it? Does it clutter the mind? What's wrong with the adjective? It does weaken them. It, 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 it weakens it. And in effect, it says, I have not chosen the word. You, you know Twain's, Mark Twain's dictum, the difference between the word and the right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. 
to choose the adjective is the lightning bug. What about anticipation? Anticipation is better than surprise. Much. You say in the book. And I think, you are you talking about the end of a story when you talk about surprise? Yes. Um, think of Hamlet. You know from the beginning Hamlet's going to buy it. He's talking to a ghost. The ghost is, is uh, egging him on to do, uh, so you know that things are not going to turn out well for Hamlet. The beauty of Hamlet is that we watch things not turn out well, knowing perfectly well that they're not going to turn out well. To anticipate something builds something in us. And we start to think, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? Is it? Yes, it's going to happen. Surprise is easy. Coleridge made the difference. Coleridge said, if you look at a piece of land over which the sun is going to rise, and you know the sun is going to rise, and eventually it rises, it is so much more satisfying than if suddenly the moon rose or something else happened. You start to think, could this sun possibly rise, and what does it mean that it's going to rise, and why am I so uh, overwhelmed by the beauty of it when I, when I see it, even though I've seen it every morning, and I will see it every morning again, and you start to realize that you're dealing with something much more mysterious than the mere um, shock of surprise. Yeah, I think there's a correlation in life. You walk into a room and you suddenly are surprised by a birthday party. Terrible. There, there could be a, <laughs> a, moment, a moment of pleasure once you get over the terror. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that moment of terror is nothing like the anticipation of wondering what you're going to get for your birthday Absolutely. as a present. And what, by the way, what are you getting me for my birthday as a present? Not a damn thing. You know, I'd like to tell your audience of, of your gift giving, which is, uh, uh, is such a disgrace that they really ought to know who they're dealing with. Ginny uh, and I, my wife and I, went to dinner with Alan and Arlene. It's always a pleasure, and it was around Christmas. We had a Christmas gift for Alan and Ar Arlene, and I presented it to him, and Alan looks at me and said, I don't have any gift for you. Then he looks at the gift I gave him, hands it back to me, and says, here. Well, a, that a mind both, that capable of that is really not to be trusted yeah but it was a surprise but it also included the anticipation that you were going to get something from yes so I, you had, I was so it was, I was really win-win i was so happy <laughs> how do you start a piece that you're going to write huh i tell you i uh, um it's not always the same thing, but it's so often the same thing that I guess I could talk about it with some confidence. And it's, uh, I know, and it sounds mysterious, more mysterious than it ought to be because this is a craft as well as an art. But I wait. I wait for something to come to me, and it's usually an image. It's almost always an image, not a word. A you know, I hear that from other writers, that the image comes, and it happened to me. Of course. And I, and, I, and I afterwards read about other people like uh, the French lieutenant's woman. The writer saw this mysterious woman in a cloak at the end of a pier and wondered who she was. There you go. There you go. And, I, and when I wrote Four Seasons, all I had was the feet and legs of three couples getting out of a car. Ah, that's perfect. And I wondered who those three couples were. It's just right. Just right. Now, so, what what would be an example that that happened for you? My of most that recent kind? my most recent book is called Cold Moon, 
and the cold moon of the year is the last moon of the year, and it anticipates the winter solstice. I did not know that what I just told you. I had to look that up. But one night, I was visiting in New Jersey, and I looked and I looked over the ocean and looked out at the ocean. And to my left was the moon, except the moon was so big and so bloodshot, I thought it was the harvest moon. And mm-hmm. it couldn't be for the timing, but it was, it was overwhelming. And I looked it up, and I thought, what is this? Does this have a name? And sure enough, it was the cold moon. Once I saw the cold moon, all imaged so far, like the legs that you saw, and no definition, I didn't, I didn't come to any conclusions. And then I started to think. That's when you sort of marry the intellect to the, to the uh, image. You marry the intellect to the art. And I thought, well, I'm coming to the end of my life. I'm in the eclipse years of my life. And there's this moon rising over the sea and shedding its um, gorgeous glow over the waves, etc. What is important to me? What is important to me that I have learned? And it came to three simple things, life, love, and responsibility. And so I wrote Cold Moon on life, love, and responsibility. How did you get from the image of the moon to what does life mean to me? That seems like a leap. Yeah, it's always. How come it, you didn't write about an astronaut? It, it <laughs> well, because I don't know anything about an astronaut. I barely know anything well, about life. Why, why, why let that stand in the way? It, it now? never has before. You're quite right, and it's cruel of you to mention it. I don't know how it happens, but I know that if you allow yourself to sort of give yourself to the, the mystery, you allow yourself to give yourself to the mystery in front of you. This beautiful moon rising over the sea shedding its light on the sea and reflected in the waves and the waves almost look like an audience applauding the moon as the as the moon uh, rises and becomes more full on the water and i live in the mystery what what is this this overwhelming this overwhelming sight and we're little people doing little things and suddenly there's this bigness in front of us and you think well If I am writing about the end of my life, I must have learned something that's worth giving to others. Most of most of writing, one way or another, is a work of generosity, whether the the writer uh, admits it at the moment uh, or not. Uh, He wants to give something to somebody, and I wanted to give what I had picked up about the importance of life, the absolute necessity of love, and the the power of and the necessity of responsibility of how life. It's full of instances where one thing is responsible for the welfare of another, and we are always, we, that is people, are always responsible for the welfare of one another. And so these three things. When you're writing a piece of fiction, I get the impression you like to let it take turns that you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. In doing that, do you find when you get halfway through or two-thirds of the way through, that it's starting to mean something other than what you thought it meant when you started? All the time. Not just I. I remember I have a friend who wrote a a book about her mother, and it was a very good book, but she hated her mother, or so, so, so she thought. And so... And her mother was a Harridan. I knew the, uh, the mother. The, the mother was really impossible to deal with. But it was, after all, the daughter writing about her mother. And I'm reading along and reading along and reading along, and then suddenly things are changing in this book. This is a memoir, not fiction. 
And I begin to see she is changing. She's beginning to understand that her mother was simply a person. That all of the monstrosities that she thought were the, that she thought her mother was an accretion of um, were simply the things that go into the makeup of anybody. She may have had some more weaknesses than others, but she was still a person who wished her daughter well. And I had the same experience when I wrote The Boy Detective about my parents. I was uh, furious at my parents for sort of deserting me when I was about six years old and focusing on my brother and leaving the world to me alone. Turned out to be advantages in some way because solitary life is a necessarily creative one and a, uh, and a self-sufficient one. But I was angry. And at the end of that memoir, too, I came to it and I finally addressed my mother, who had Alzheimer's at the time, and I said, uh, in a passage, I said, Mother, um, may I talk to you? And the, it changed uh, entirely. Um, I, the, the writing reveals so much in you, whether it's fiction or, uh, or memoir. You must have felt that when you wrote your memoir, too that there, there, uh, there was this you knew, you were certain of, you were certain of, you were certain of, and then you weren't certain of it. I had a similar experience to what you described, only uh, I think it's sort of a negative version of it. Arlene would read, would read it as I was writing it, and she'd say, is this how you understand this now, or is this how you understood it then? Very smart. And I'd really have to, I'd realize that I had told the story so many times in my mind. I retained the point of view of the child who feels wronged. And I hadn't seen it in the That's just adult what I was perspective. Doing. That's just what I was doing. I, I, was, I felt too, in different ways, I know your life story, but I, I was the wrong child. And then I almost said, so what? You know? <laughs> Uh, um, you know, I, I, you watch the suffering world around us, and what what am, what am I whining about being being the wrong child? I did all right. Uh, you did all right. So, what do you, do you have to take into account? What your changing view is, or, or does the book look strange? The book the book gets ahead of you. I don't know that you can take it into account. Suddenly, you're writing something that you didn't know you thought at all. Where did that come from? Haven't you done yeah. that? You write a sentence, you, your head snaps back, and where did that come from? The, all the time. Yeah. All the time. The mystery of writing is not to be dismissed. Um, I know it sounds uh, un, you know, perhaps unnecessarily spiritual or, or even religious, and I don't mean it either way, but uh, one must dwell in the mystery. You must learn to dwell in the mystery of things, the things you do not understand, and let it go. And then you start to suspect, is this part of a plan? And I have no idea. <laughs> well, it may be. Your, your unconscious mind may be working on it. Yeah. Along the lines of what you were just saying, I'm, I'm impressed, and I wonder if you have this same feeling about what's going on when you write. There seems to be an associative process that's important to latch onto. One thought hooks onto another thought, like the child's toy that my kids had when they were small, of plastic monkeys. Right, right. And you could hook their hands together, make a chain of monkeys. And when you pull out a monkey, whether it's good or not for what you're writing, you have to put it down because it's chained to another monkey that's chained to another one 
And if you get that associative linkage right, there's a golden monkey at the end of the chain oh, that you didn't nice. know was there. Very nice. Yeah. Do you have that experience? I, I, I wouldn't have put it that well, but I, yes, I have certainly have had that experience. I've had the other experience sometimes is that the link isn't there right away so that there are dissociative things that I write, uh, mm. which are like, like lines of poetry that suddenly came in. But then I go back and say, ah, this is how this connects. You said something in the book, you were talking about something I didn't quite get, but whether or not the writer should try to explain things. Yeah. What is it? What do you mean by that? I don't know. We both had the honor and joy of the friendship of Edgar Doctorow. Mm. And I used to love to watch Edgar. First of all, he hated Q&As and readings. And he used to time his readings to be 59 minutes within the 60s so that he'd only have a minute left. Uh, and I'd watch him squirm during that minute. In fact, one time we did a reading together and one time <laughs> in that minute, somebody, there was a question, uh, weren't you in law and order? Said to Edgar, Edgar had no idea what this man was talking about, uh, <laughs> the, 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 whole, the, the irrelevance of the question. But one reason Edgar hated the Q&A was inevitably English scholars, other writers, um, admirers would ask, how did you do this? Mm. And he said, you know, and he would, you're almost ashamed to say, I have no idea. Mm. So that's what you mean by not explaining things? Because in a way you can't. No, there, I mean, there's, you know, much of the world is not to be explained. Um, we've, we, uh, we listen to the news and we are horrified by an event in the news. And you think, how could poss how could this possibly happen? That's on the that's on the uh, that's in the realm of the news. In the realm of our own minds, it's the same thing. How could this possibly happen? I, I have no idea how I came to this, or how I wanted to write this, or why. I've I finished a whole book on a subject that I hadn't even imagined I'd write about. You've written so many different kinds of genres. You've written poetry, essays, fiction, drama. How are they different from one another? Or are they? No, they're all very bad. And uh, the... <laughs> that's how well, they I mean, how your works are different, how the, the, those forms are Oh, different. I see. Um, <laughs> I, I find, and uh, I think you do too, and most people who write find that the subject commands its own form. Hmm. So um, I write a novel on Thomas Murphy because Thomas Murphy... Um, was saying things or thinking things that I that I liked, and he was a good guy, and I, I wanted to be a good guy like Thomas Murphy. So he said, "Why don't you write about me in this fictional world?" And I did, uh, uh, and I did my best with him. Sometimes poetry, which is elliptical, so that you don't really finish the thought, but feel that the accretion of these various lines will come to something powerful. So you choose that. The essay in which I started, I started as an essayist in journalism at Time Magazine, or before that at the New Republic. The essay is a very interesting form, and I I still feel more comfortable in it than anything else, partly because I can ground it. I can say this actually happened, and sometimes you, ground, you are writing about something that didn't actually happen, and partly because it really does allow the imagination to fly 
sometimes students ask me the difference between an essay and a column. And I, I tell them, just think about the column as if it were an actual column, a Doric column or a Corinthian column or Ionic column. It goes from top to bottom and says, vote, vote for Smith. This is why, this is why, this is why, vote for Smith. An essay just leaves the column entirely, goes off, and is a digression. It's like comic comic relief, which you've used as an actor so beautifully. The idea that um, I will go as far as I can off the main subject, but I'll come back. It's like Louis Armstrong playing black and blue. Louis Armstrong plays black and blue, and he, then he does a riff off the, of the, of the uh, central tune. And you think, he's never coming back. He's gone too far. He's up in <laughs> heaven. He is not going to land again. And sure enough, he comes right back to it. And the tune to which he returns is enlightened by his digression. You know, that's so interesting. That is very similar to what I t heard myself telling my granddaughter once when she had to write an essay when she was, uh, I don't know, fifth, sixth grade, something like that. And, and I said, I think an essay is a conversation with yourself. Yeah. Where you, you do allow yourself to go off in another direction that almost seems in opposition to what you mean to say. But it's the consideration of an outside force that gives a little excitement. Yes. So you know, nice. It's not just, not just a declaration. It's a tussle. Very nice. And then I was horrified that I'd said that to her because somebody was going to ask her on a test, what's an <laughs> essay? And she'd say it's a conversation with herself and get zero. Do you know that with my granddaughter, I've never done better than a B plus? <laughs> <laughs> it's, such, it's so humiliating. I, uh, uh, she comes to me and asks Bapo, which is my grandparental name, says, Bapo, would you help me with this essay? Oh, sure. He said, said the professional. <laughs> B plus is as high as I've ever gotten. When we come back from our break, Roger Rosenblatt tells me how he helps younger writers find their voice. And we talk about his most recent online venture called Write America, in which every week writers discuss their work with other writers as well as their listening audience. The goal is to have writers explore our common humanity, despite the divisions increasingly separating us. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clear and vivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Roger Rosenblatt. You're not only recognized as a great writer, but also as a great teacher. And there's a lot of criticism in some teaching. How much criticism do you use compared to how much praise? I, I, I'm 95% I'm praise. Um, I believe, actually, I believe in praise on two levels. I don't 
I used to do a lot of book reviewing for the times and, and, uh, uh, and other publications. Um, and then, uh, and I was amused at my own ability to, uh, knock down a book. Um, uh, the, uh, 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 how clever I was and how cute I was and this and that. And after two or three of these things, I looked, I looked at these things and I said, what am I doing? Who cares that you don't like this book and who cares how clever you are in saying so? Is it not better to find something you like so that you can be expansive in your apprehension of it and then make everybody happy? The author's happy because you got what she or he was writing. You're happy. Editor's happy. Re the readers are happy. The uh, it takes a little living to know that uh, uh, not to be clever at somebody else's expense, especially in things that count like a book review. So I just don't, I don't, I do not review books I don't like. That sounds like a really good solution to the problem because it must be difficult, especially if you're face to face with a student or a friend who shows you what they've written. Sometimes it must be a struggle to find so, a positive you know, it, thing it, to it, say. It, I mean, how, you can't just say, I love this paper you've typed it on. Yeah, <laughs> you're sometimes tempted. But the, the, the truth of the matter is, if you do this long enough, and God knows I've done it long enough, there's always something to admire in, in everything. And, and it's not the paper, you know. Um, they, the, uh, a particular line, a particular image is nice, a way to start something, or the subject matter itself, which may not have been treated quite as well as it, uh, it could have been. Then you, what you want to do is see, is there something in this writer that she is not playing to, but is a strength that could be her future or his future as a writer? And that takes some concentration. And the most use I've ever been to students is when I figured out what they should be writing about. I'm usually not wrong. They, they, How do you know? How do you latch they, on because to they what let, it is? They let you know. They, they, uh, uh, um, they choose a subject that suddenly brings them to their knees. When they're at that point, when they really are emotionally drained by what they're writing, then that's the, that's the real McCoy. Uh. So I, then I say, let's try that. Let's go for that. You write this book. You get people to come up with things they didn't expect was in them with ingenious prompts. <laughs> like, I love the one. Do you mind if I mention it in public? A little bit. Where you close the door and yeah. you hear the sound of the door closing. I must and say, I take, I take pride in that. Tell me about what goes on when you do that. The genesis of that thing was pure dumb luck. I was teaching at Harvard in the Kennedy School, and the Kennedy School, as you know, raises world leaders, and 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 they're only interested in writing memoranda, and it it has it's nothing to do with our world. But Harvard thought I could teach essay writing. Then, um, uh, to add uh, insult to injury, they made, gave me a class of thirty or thirty-five people. It's impossible to teach a writing class of that uh, of that size. So the 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 term was going on and I was getting absolutely nowhere and they were not, you know, they were not learning anything except to, again, how to write a memorandum to <laughs> their prime minister or something else. Some of them I think did run countries in any case. Uh, one day I'll just, I stopped in the door and I looked over to this group and then they were so eager again. And I thought I'm going to let them down again. And I heard the door close behind me and I cl it clicked. And so I opened it again and I closed it and I opened it again and I closed it and I did it one more time. And I said, write down what you hear. And it, Alan, 
one young woman who hadn't written anything interesting wrote, in my father's house there were no doors. That was the first sentence of her, mm. in my father's house. I mean, it was already a, a, a writer writing. In my father's house, there were no doors. She had grown up in trailers and Navy camps and then was going to write about her father and read it, did a beautiful piece. A gay uh, guy was breaking up with his partner and he begins, he said we didn't click, but the door clicked. Oh, <laughs> and then, I, I know, I know, I know. I was just, I was you know, talking about hog heaven. Um, uh, a black kid from Harlem's father was leaving the home that, that particular, a particular Sunday morning. And the father shut the door and he heard the, the door click. And then what he added was, we sat down to pancakes. And I thought, now we have a writer. who The, the, the pain of the father, you know, leaving. Yeah. And suddenly you are then back into the family that's left. And here is an you know, accoutrement of the family that uh, is left. And from that point on, they, they really did get what it was to write. Hey, do you want to talk about Write America? He That's said, please. That's just exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> how, how did Write America come about? I'm so glad what, you asked. What, what was your inspiration? <laughs> Um, it was nothing small. Um, and I know you went through the same thing with Arlene and just the whole country sitting. You remember the night in November, a couple of weeks after the election, when Trump was going, doing through his malevolent mischief about the uh, um, authenticity of the election. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris addressed the country and said, in effect, we are president and vice president. And that's that. The, the, the recounts have been done. That night, there were riots in the streets and in the cities of the fury of people who opposed that view. And then, of course, we had January 6th where, where the crowd of thugs was ready to take over the country uh, and, and came very perilously close. Anyway, I thought, can writers do anything about this? Is there something that writers can do? And instead of thinking of a pulpit or a, a soapbox, I thought, you know, what we do is the antithesis of this activity. That is, writers write to create a human situation where people recognize what is being written by their own attachment to it and their own connections, irrespective of policy or politics or anything else. So I wrote to you and half a dozen other writers I know and said, do you think this is, there's anything to this? And everybody did. Now we are 90 writers, 90, uh, 90 writers of the total diversity, a beautiful diversity of genre, of backgrounds, of, of locations, and uh, um, of attitudes and everything. And we do readings once a week. Uh, these uh, readings, let's say you were you, <laughs> the most successful, you with, you with Arlene, was a glorious night when you just read, each, read things that you had written and then talked about it. Um, and I, uh, so we have Russell Banks and Paul Auster and Alice McDermott and Rita Dove and on and on. Um, wonderful writers paired with other writers, wonderful writers. They read for 15 minutes each and then they talk about what they're, what, what they have heard in each other's work. Some know each other's work from before, some are just learning it, uh, now and inevitably what they are talking about is the human connections that they have discovered in each other and in and which they appeal to in their readers. Then the audience comes into 
this little hour of, of uh, presentation and ask questions and sometimes say, hey, I too, I understand. I also grew up in that kind of painful environment. We all are, we all suffer mm -hmm. the same things and we are, um, we uh, are part of the same human family and writers depend on that. Um, and, and the joke of it is all writers uh, that I know, including myself, are misfits and loners. Uh, they, they have nothing, you know, uh, nothing to do with one, one another. Something about this brought them together. And for every week, Alan, every week, there are at least a half a dozen other writers in the group responding to the writer who is reading. Mm. And it's just so nice to see, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, and there's nothing easy about it. They're asking hard questions or they're applauding things that are worth applauding. But uh, Write America has uh, um, so far been uh, just what I wanted. And who knows if it's successful in the bigger sense? I would never know that. I would, there's no way to measure it. But um, week by week, it's doing the right thing. We're coming close to having to end our conversation. So let me ask you one technical thing about writing. What's the best way to end a piece? Again, I, I'm thrown back into this mysterious business. Sometimes I write the end. I, I never know where I'm going in a piece. And I caution my students against outlines. Do not outline what you're writing. Just why, why not? Why shouldn't you? Be, out? Because you'll, you'll take the surprises away from yourself. You huh. are Alice following the rabbit wherever the rabbit's going. Okay. Uh -huh. There is a point, however, where you say, um, enough is enough. I'm halfway through this mother and I got to know how this thing ends. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you write an ending, which I have done and my students do too. And then you get to the ending and say, what are you talking about? This isn't the ending. This is not the ending of this piece. And you find that you're writing something else and something else ends it. And, and you stop. And when you stop, there's a, Sweet satisfaction that you never thought you would have uh, when you uh, when you started out. It's almost as if you're out of breath. You know, huh. I I've done it. <sighs> I breathe. I've I've done it. Done it as well as I can. Hope you enjoy it. Well, our ending tends to be predictable because we ask seven quick questions, and uh, I hope your game. They're not embarrassing unless, of course, you tell the truth. Yeah, I know. I hate that. <laughs> First question, what do you wish you really understood? That's such a good question. I, I Because it really does seem antithetical to me, I wish I understood cruelty. Hmm. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? How about this? You have your facts wrong. <laughs> you carry Band-Aids with you? <laughs> I have a personal physician. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Hmm. Uh, oh, I, um, uh, I know. I used to play basketball when I was a kid. And, uh, I, you know, I played on high school teams and a little in college. And, and when I played on the Irish international basketball team, you can imagine what my name was sound, sounded like uh, when it was announced. There would be, and there, there would be a tool, you know, and there would be Finnegan, you know, and a Flaherty, you know, and Rosenblatt. What? Um, so the uh, uh, so some somebody said, would you have rather been a basketball player than a writer? And no question of it, you bet. <laughs> it's not supposed to be a strange answer. It's supposed to be a strange question. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. 
<laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> you mean without weapons? You mean just you, you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> without wrestling them to the ground? <laughs> Although that would be fun, or at least to try. Not in our age. Um, how do you stop a compulsive uh, talker? I don't know that I have been in the company of too many compulsive talkers, but um, I find try to find something she or he says that's revealing, and I open it up. I did that with Ronald Reagan. I did it with now that you, you did tell, explain. You you remind me I did it. I did the Man of the Year story as when it was called Man of the Year at that time on Reagan, and they sent me out, and I was in Pacific Palisades. I knew everything about Ronald Reagan. They say, you know, when a a president talks to you, they say 20 minutes. It's always 20 minutes. And because they don't want to go any longer, they don't don't want to reveal too much and so forth. So I figured if I've got 20 minutes, i got to make the most of it. I was the world's expert in Ronald Reagan by the time I hit um, Pacific Palisades. And the worst thing for me that I knew about him was he was great at anecdotes. He would tell anecdotes. Half of them were bullshit, but they were amazing. I mean, he was a wonderful kind of bullion character. You may have even known him as an actor. He was just he was just engaging. He was lovely to be with, in spite of the fact that his politics would be antithetical to mine and yours. In any case, um, he was going on with these anecdotes, and the twenty minutes was was flying by. And I thought, I'm sunk. I am, this is, I'm cooked. I'm, I, I can't write these same anecdotes everybody did. I had read that he had lamented, more than lamented, he had really resented that his father never went to any of his uh, football games when he played football in high school. Uh, and it was a bitter thing for him. His own son had said the same thing of him. Uh, his son, his son, who went to the University of Arizona, said, um, I love my father, but he never went to any of my football games. In one opening, between anecdotes, I got this in. I said, Mr. President, you said this about your father. Your son has said this about you. Do you see your father in yourself? And then it failed. failed. Then his face failed, entirely uh, went limp, and he went to another realm entirely. And I had him. And we had a... A uh, real conversation, a uh, person to person, not anecdote to anecdote. Uh, from that point on, I forget what your question was, Alan, but I thought this would be delightful. <laughs> Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. <laughs> How do you start up? A I don't even know. I don't know them. Uh, I, the, I am so inept. I don't know that I don't know that person. I am so socially inept. I have sat at a dinner table where I addressed the woman to my left by the name of the woman to my right and and then did the same thing on the other side. So whatever you ask me about a dinner party, I get it wrong. Well, the question was how do you how do you begin or get a get going a real conversation where things are talked about? I, I don't. I talk too real. much. I talk too little. I am in. I. I. You might as well put a gopher at the table in my seat. Uh, the gopher would have, have more social and social graces. Well, you have the advantage that you can start telling Ronald Reagan's anecdotes. Exactly. As long as I can keep, rely on those, I'm a happy man. Okay. Next to last question: What gives you confidence? Um, I guess the love of my friends. Huh. Thank you. You qualify. Last question. What book changed your life? The poetry of W.H. Auden when I was in high school. 
in high school. Yeah, I, I started to see how one could write. And I don't always agree with Auden. I don't think he always makes sense, but um, the effort was wonderful and the language was wonderful. And I thought, this is how the game is played. Did you begin writing poetry then? Yes, I did. Roger, this has been, as I knew it would be, a real pleasure. It's, it's, and, and I'll see you later for dinner. Yeah, let's do that. But it's such a pleasure for me. It's a pleasure to live with you, Alan Alda, your ridiculous character. See you later, Roger. You bet. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Roger Rosenblatt was an award-winning essayist at Time Magazine and PBS NewsHour for some 15 years before turning to full-time writing of novels and memoirs. His first novel, Laugh'em Rising, was a New York Times bestseller, as were several of his later books, including the one we began our talk with called Unless It Moves the Human Heart, on the art and craft of writing. His most recent book is Cold Moon, on life, love, and responsibility. Since 2008, he's been the Distinguished Professor of English and Writing at Stony Brook University. The next installment of Write America to be streamed live on October 4th will feature writers Linda Paston, Tennessee Reed, and Frank Langella. You can find that and subsequent weekly episodes at the website of the hosting bookstore, Bird Books. That's B-Y-R-D-B-O-O-K-S dot com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer about his new book, The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics. I've never heard a voice raised in anger. I've never heard one justice say something mean about another. I've seen many instances where you have people labeled, quote, conservative, and people labeled, quote, liberal, divide in such a way that they're both conservatives and liberals, quote, on one side and the same on the other side. Not the same five and same four, the same six or same three by any means. And you know what's so interesting to me? I One year I counted them up. And I noticed that the press does say very often in an unusual combination. But there were more unusual ones than there were usual ones. Justice Stephen Breyer, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>